Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because my friend, Dr. Robert Warren, returns to the podcast, and this time he's talking about an amazing evolutionary system that he and a bunch of colleagues have stumbled upon and really revealed some fascinating insights into. It involves oaks, wasps, galls, and ants. But before we get into that, I do have a quick message from our friends over at Radiolab. Hey, there's a bunch of really great stuff here to suck on. What? On Radiolab? We're going up. These trees are huge. Into the treetops. Uh, it was like being a detective. To chase a mystery. There's something going on up here. What, what's, ha- what's about to happen? Oh my gosh. And stumble into a secret garden. This is amazing. I know, I know. Whoa. In the sky. Forests on forests. Listen wherever you get podcasts. All right, as I said before, make sure you subscribe to that podcast. It is wonderful, but let's jump into today's episode. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Robert Warren. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Robert Warren, welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited to bring you on in this context, but how about a brief intro for those that have not heard your previous episodes, although I'm going to make them go back and listen if they want to know your full backstory. Uh, Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. So we can't do the mystery episode where they have to go back. (laughs) Who is this guy? (laughs) Go back to the clues. Um, So yeah, Robert Warren, I'm at uh, SUNY Buffalo State College typically call myself a global change ecologist because I'm very interested in species invasion, climate change, and uh, habitat fragmentation and how those three interact. In pursuing that, I um, have seemed to have fallen into doing a lot of work with plants and ants um, that they rhyme was never intended, but (laughs) just sort of came about. That's awesome. Yeah, it's funny to hear you describe it. In fact, the other day I went to your website to download a paper to show someone and I was like, what does he consider himself? So it's it's nice to hear the narrative kind of spoken in professional. So you were the one that downloaded a paper, <laughs> finally. <laughs> oh, come on. It was your world famous basketball paper. And it's, ah. yeah, I can't be the only one in that one. You and my mom. Thanks. Oh, nice. <laughs> At least your parents read your research. They're probably listening. I shouldn't say that. Anyway, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Always a joy. Yes. And so you mentioned plants, you mentioned ants, and the plant thing still sticks, but uh, you've kind of moved up. You're still in the same order of of the insect world, but you've kind of pivoted <laughs> to branching out into some others. Um we're talking about galls today. What got you on that bent? Well, I like that you said pivoted because that suggests intention. But I would say it's more like got pulled in. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'll give kind of a little bit of a background. Um, so a lot of my research is on plant-ant interactions, mostly seed dispersal by ants. And, and how that's affected by global change. And I have to admit, um, I was very intrigued with Doug Tallamy's work on the non-native native species as hosts for Lepidoptera. Hmm. 
from the co-evolution perspective. So the fact that there's been thousands of, you know, of years of co-evolution between uh, attack and defense so that Lepidoptera can specialize on a plant. And um, I thought that was very intriguing. It's, it's a straightforward study and, and um, I thought it was great. So one day it hit me, Lepidoptera or caterpillars are, are very adapted to their hosts, but even a tighter, more intimate co-evolution would be that between a gall and a plant. Um, and for listeners who aren't fully familiar with galls, this is essentially when an insect uh, over deposits into plant tissue, the plant tissue reacts somewhat like a cancer tumor, grows around the egg, and that's the very simple form. It gets, as, as you know, Matt, hmm. incredibly complex because this has been going on for millions of years, um, but it's super intimate. Um, you would have to overcome the defenses of a specific host plant, so it'd be hard to be a generalist gall. Yeah. And so... I thought, you know, it'd be kind of interesting to test Talamy's paper with galls. And so a student and I worked through that. And and certainly we showed the exact same pattern. Uh, Native species far exceed non-natives as gall hosts and woody far exceeds um, non-woody. And of course, at the top of that are oaks (laughs) who just seem to have interactions with everybody. (laughs) And so... Yeah, so that kind of had me in the gall world. Interesting. Pulled me in. Yeah. And it's cool to um, show that pattern goes beyond just the kind of cuddly caterpillar thing. I love Lepidopter, do not get me wrong here, but it's nice to get that confirmation across ecology because it's really important to reiterate like this is not a one-off pattern that happened in one walk of life. This is something that repeats itself time and time again. Native plants will always interact the most strongly with the indigenous life that depends on them. And you can only overcome something you co-evolved with, which is really the height of dysfunctional family. Right? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Yikes, there's too many corollaries there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, so uh, secondarily, uh, in doing a study in North Carolina, where we were looking at forest fragmentation impacts on ant-mediated dispersal of understory forest herbs. We found all of these seeds in our artificial ant nests and I couldn't figure out what they were. Hmm. I was like, what the hell are these? So I knew that ants will pick up phasmid eggs or, or walking stick eggs. And so that's what I thought they might be, or walking stick eggs. So I took them to Wayne Gall, Resident, Oddly resident named, entomologist. Named <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, so he, and he looked at them and he pretty quickly recognized them as snippet wasp galls. Hmm. I was like, wait a minute, how in the hell are wasp galls getting into ant nests? So, you know, the paper was about forest fragmentation effects. And so I had put this in the paper sort of to announce the phenomenon, but did not explore it. Okay. And to be honest, took a job above state, <laughs> did some other stuff. And, you know, I'm not really a gall expert. Sure. And it, it, it sort of fell through the cracks. So this has been kind of percolating for a, a little bit in the background. Yeah. So what was it? Two summers ago, it was the summer right before the, the COVID 
hmm. shut down. My, I have a grad student looking at uh, fungal ant interactions with seed dispersal, and she brought me uh, these samples from the her collections of, of ant colonies and said, do you know what these seeds are? Hmm. And I looked at them. And so, no, you know, the original study was in Western North Carolina and she's bringing me these from Western New York. Hmm. Not close at all. No. And I looked at them and I'm like, I've seen this before. (laughs) (laughs) I can help you this time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, These are not seeds. And so I told her, I said, you know, I think we should do a note on this in an entomology journal. But I said, we need to say more than snippet wasps. We need to get an expert that can tell us what wasps these are. Oh, nice. And that was like a Friday. (laughs) And I kid you not, on Monday, I get an email from Andy Dean at Penn State. And the email said, I was reading your paper on uh, the, you know, the North Carolina golf phenomenon. And I was wondering if you ever followed up with that. Uh, (laughs) And kid you not. So this was not a prompt. You didn't email him pictures of the gulls or anything like that. No. And to be honest, honestly, I emailed him back and said, I don't know you. I don't know what's on your CV, but you need to add impeccable timing. (laughs) If you were a superstitious man, this would have been a hell of a week for you. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That is remarkable. That It's one of those moments in your career. You just got to go like, well, this is a sign if there ever was such a thing. Well, and it kind of goes back to the old phrase, it's better to be lucky than good. There you go. <laughs> so lucked into an amazing collaboration. Um, he's a gall expert, like not just a gall expert, super gall expert. He's doing gall phylogeny. He knows this stuff like the back of his hand. So, uh, you know, we sent all of our galls down there and he knew what they were like that. Nice. And so at that point, we started to discuss collaborating, but we were on this COVID shutdown. Hmm. And so have have you watched these videos during COVID where the musicians are in different places in different <laughs> studios and collaborate and make a video. Yeah. My uh, favorite band just put on an album that was created that way. Shout out to Between the Barren and Me. Did they really? Yeah. Their whole album was recorded remotely uh, by individual pieces and then just sending each other files. How, but that's how we did this. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> we just didn't record the video. <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> it would have probably been a little less exciting than strumming or plucking away, but you know. Not for us nerds. <laughs> we were true. very excited. Touche. <laughs> Eureka. <laughs> this was, oh, because, you know, it was what, it's just like these bands, you know, you have, you have a drummer, bass player. We all brought something different and it just meshed. And That's so, awesome. you know, um, Andy brought in John Tuker, who is also gall expert, par none at Penn State. They have a um, postdoc, Antoine Gruyer, who, Um, he actually, I kept saying, oh, we need to do this. He's like, no, Robert, we must do more. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, we'll do more. And so, um, yeah, we, we had a great time. And, and to be honest, you know, I'm a little bit older of a faculty and I'm kind of the point where I'm not going to collaborate with people I don't like. (laughs) So I, I said, you know, I think we have to have zoom happy hour. Nice. Cause, and it was surreptitious on my part be it, but i wanted to make sure these were you know good folks yeah yeah and they were great folks good I, I don't know why they didn't kick me out uh, 
you're a good person too, Robert. <laughs> They're like, hey, yeah, yeah, okay. We could do this without Robert. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so the long and the short of it is um, I did all the behavior work with the ants, uh, myself and my uh, my uh, graduate student, Chloe Mokadam. And then um, Antoine did this just amazing histology work on the galls and then seeds to be able to compare to galls and seeds. And I can put this on context in a sec. Sure, just, sure. Um, and then John did the chemical analysis of, here's a little hint to the future of the capellos or capellos. And then Andy kind of pulled it all together and Andy has just an amazing knowledge of the whole thing. So yeah, everybody contributed from separate places. It was so fun and, and and yeah, I'm getting excited because the paper is awesome. It just came together really well. So what sounded like it started as sort of an observational note that you were going to flesh out with maybe a, a, a nod to the species that created the gull turned into something quite massive with, with actually large implications, which we'll, like you said, we'll flesh out. But that's a, that's a really cool backstory to kind of see like the, the underneath the hood, I guess, of how the science comes together. <laughs> Yeah, well, and how, um, you know, we hear the bad stories, and certainly there are those, but when you get into science, there's some really cool people, and these are folks that are are really interested in their systems, yeah. interested in, the, and we were all kind of interested in the natural history, and so there was just this, nobody, there was no ego, I guess that's yeah. what it was. But again, it's it's big theory meets natural history and observation. It's a it's a melding of all the things that makes science fun. It's not just data crunching for the sake of data crunching and aiming for the top tier. If that's your thing, more power to you. But you know, you're you're actually exercising what you know. Probably most of us listening here were doing as kids is going, oh, that's cool. Wonder why that is. It's just you, you followed it to its logical conclusion, I guess, and you could say it so colloquially <laughs> <laughs> no absolutely well just like the conversations you and i have all the time right it's you know you'll you do a, a podcast on calicanthus and i'm lost because i'm off whoa wait a minute <laughs> i love that that episode turned into like a four-hour evening discussion of like I wonder why that <laughs> is and we just both walked away going yeah i don't think we got anywhere with it but i'm still amazed by this whole thing <laughs> a lot more questions <laughs> I was just, and this, maybe you'll edit this out. This is a side, but I was reading a book on Rosetta Stone and I didn't realize the original myth, mythology of the Minotaur, the person who went in to follow the Minotaur would get lost in the maze. So his, his friend tied a string to him so he could follow the string out. And I say that all the time that I, I can't help but following the string to its <laughs> complete conclusion, not knowing that that goes all the way back to the mythology of the Minotaur. Amazing. <laughs> but this is what we do, right? We, yeah. we find the string and we're, we we head right into the maze. Like, where does this go? Yeah. And if you're, you know, into the forest herbs like I am, you don't actually look up most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And you're lost in the maze. Yeah. Or, you know, it's, it's getting dark. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> But and then you do a PhD and discover the Minotaur. Uh, yeah, then it's been in me the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got this system sort of teased out here. You've got galls, you've got wasps, you've got trees, 
you've got ants, you've got seeds somewhere in the mix. So, you know, given the disparate parts all kind of found each other, how do we start making sense of the story as you guys made sense of the story? Like, what's the connection between all of this? It's a good question. I, and I, you know, I think this is such a great example of when you the first thing discovered sets the precedent, hmm. but it might not actually be the precedent. And so, <laughs> you know, a hundred years ago, what is it? A German researcher essentially uh, discovered and explained Miramacocri uh, with a liasome. So the fact that these seeds have an appendage that attracts ants, the ants pick up the seed with appendage, the liasome, take it back to the nest, usually eat the elizome or feed it to the larvae and discard the seed. And so for a hundred years, that's been the story. And now we find these galls drop off the leaf with an appendage. We've named it uh, capello, which hmm. is Greek for hat. Nice. So, or cap, because we, we were calling them gall caps. And then we realized we needed a real name for them. So we're, they're <laughs> capellos. And so the capellos would be the, the parallel of the eliasome has the the ants treat it just like eliasomes. Hmm. They take them back. I had never actually seen the galls with the capellos on them until Andy and John and, and those folks sent me a whole bag of them from Penn State to use in oh, experiments. Wow! Because wow. I had seen them in the nests after the ants had already removed them. Just the gall was left. And so you know, then we, you know, if you look at the histology essentially the anatomy and if you look at the chemistry they're pretty much identical to eliasomes whoa so you know we're we're calling this convergent evolution huh and then you start asking yourself well which came first <laughs> it, it was the chicken right <laughs> wow yeah and these are oak galls so they're coming off of one species of oak or many species of oak? I mean, oaks. At least three. Gone. And of course, as you know, and as, as, as Talamy illustrated in his latest book to bring up Doug Talamy again, <laughs> very ancient lineage of plants. And I've, and I'm, if my numbers are off, you know, somebody can um, send me a vicious email, but I'm pretty sure that the oak, Sinipid interactions, but around something like 20 million years. Wow. And so a long time to form this coevolution. And it, I think there's folks that will investigate which came first, but the bottom line is both oaks and understory forest herbs are doing well. I'm sorry, see, that was a good mistake. <laughs> Wasps and understory herbs are doing the same thing. Taking advantage of ants in a in a in a sense, right? And Wow. Yeah. When you start to think about it, if you found this in at least, we're going to say at least, because it's not like this was an exhaustive search of oak, wasp interactions, gall formation and, and histology and chemistry. You start to think even just in Eastern North America alone, the volume of wasps and galls and, and just the availability of oaks, no matter what state you're in, where you are geographically, there's an oak, at least an oak, if not more than three. <laughs> And it just starts to compound those numbers in your head. You just do kind of like back in the napkin math and you're going, that is a lot of opportunity for these wasps to be taking advantage of both the oaks in a sense and the ants, uh, a double taking advantage of there. Which blows my mind, Matt. I mean, 
you're, you're hitting right on it. Not only has this co-evolution has these little wasps manipulating the tree, they're manipulating the tree to manipulate the ants. <laughs> I mean, that's twice removed. Yeah. Jeez. And I'm just gobsmacked by that. And if, you know, there's, we have references from, uh, again, 1940s of them talking about filling feed buckets for livestock with these galls. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. So in terms of volume, the volume of these galls is probably an order of magnitude greater than the volume of Miramacacris seeds. Yikes. Yeah, because really the Miramacacris seed, it's a guild that happens kind of roughly bend in a certain time of the year. I mean, it, it will extend farther than I think, you know, you say spring ephemeral and people think it's happening real quick, but, you know, it extends into summer. But yeah, there's no way that comes even close to matching what even a single canopy can produce in gold right. numbers. I mean, it, you walk around an arboretum or find an oak in your neighborhood during the summer, go look, and you if you start, it's one of those things where once you start looking for it, you see it everywhere, and it's really because right. it is freaking everywhere. <laughs> so volume-wise, okay, then you start to say maybe this is the driver, but then there's just so many weird stuff here. So one, we kind of forget that North America is not the center for ant-mediated seed dispersal. Really, South Africa and Australia are. Hmm. There's no oaks in Australia. Son of a gun. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. <sighs> but and in North way. America, let me. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. In North America, the main seed disperser is a phenogaster, which is a mesic forest ant, and oaks are dry forest. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, you know, you start to ask questions then because I'm I'm I, as much as taxonomy can be frustrating. I love evolutionary relationships and you start to wonder, I know nothing about ants, but I'm, you know, just based on Australia, South Africa and North America's flora. These lineages kind of converged on this separately. This isn't something that like Dicentra is related to. I mean, it, in Asia, sure. But, you know, the. This has happened multiple different times, and I'm guessing the ants that have engaged in it have evolved that behavior multiple different times. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's you know, this is the nice thing. I think that we we've put forth a, a new, uh, a strong, solid paper that tells its own story. Right, but it has opened up Pandora's box. <laughs> I mean, there are. There, you know, if I wanted to focus here, here's the rest of my career's worth of, of research. <laughs> right. So many threads <laughs> to follow. There are threads in every direction, <laughs> which is great. I mean, this is what's so exciting is, yeah. you know, and I have to admit, it's kind of like, you know, when you first start learning good statistics and you find that the statistic throws back in your face that the pattern you thought you saw was just random, <laughs> right? No. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of liked that. I had this respect for this thing that stood up and told me I was full of it. <laughs> well, here we've been so focused on Miramacacri as the drive, you know, ant plant as the driver of this co-evolution. And now we realize there's a total other player that may even be more important. Yeah. 
and and potentially had set the stage for these interactions. I mean, volume, but you start to think about what you said about the walking stick eggs. Like this isn't the only organism to take advantage of this. And so there is a huge drive here. And you know, the the ant mirror thing gets repeated as a lot of things do in science. Someone says it, no one really checks the data, and then it just gets repeated and repeated because it's a good story. And I came into your lab thinking, yeah, of course it benefits the ants. They're getting food. But even thinking about it from that context, not a lot of evidence to suggest the ants need the Myrmecocarus seeds to, to get them through the year in any way, shape, or form. And so it's really the plants taking advantage of the ants. So why not the calls doing it? You get to see where this convergent evolution of just like ants are super social insects as any social organism, the, the, the selective pressures are diffuse across large numbers, few reproductives, and it's just a perfect system to start messing with. <laughs> exactly. Well, and you think about social insects, you know, they're in terms of species number, they're minute. In terms of abundance, they're dominant. I mean, it's such a successful design. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember. I think it's in in um, uh, maybe one of E.O. Wilson's papers, but I, I, there's some on the order of tens of thousands of, of insects that manipulate ants. You know, there's caterpillars that fake a, a sound and they rate their larvae grow up inside of ant colonies, phasmids for sure, or um, stick insects, their eggs hatch and their, their larvae aren't attacked. They release a pheromone or something. I mean, taking advantage of ants is not a rare event. No. <laughs> it's apparently and, very easy to do. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, I've, I've long stopped calling the ant seed interaction of mutualism. I'm pretty skeptical that the ants need the seeds. It's at best maybe dessert, you know. <laughs> but, a little creme brulee on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, then you have to ask. So, you know, again, the ants move the galls. Why would they need that? You know, why would the galls need moved? These are wasps. They're clearly not dispersal limited. Sure. And so, you know, you could say maybe sort of a Jansen Connell, get the kids away from the adults kind of thing. But, you know, the ants aren't going to move. If you think of the drip line of an oak tree <laughs> and how far ants disperse, <laughs> yeah. that's not a huge distance. Yeah. So I think, you know, we did some nice experiments, Andy did them, where we put out galls. It certainly rotated seed them up. And it's well documented that there are a lot of gall uh, parasites. Mm. So it's probably the protection of the ant colony more than this dispersal. Sure. The other thing is, and I know this is my little pet theory that is still working its way into the field, but I think that fungal and um, pathogen protection is a big deal since ants have so many anti-pathogenic yeah. chemicals. So I was going to everything ask that. but dispersal makes sense in this case. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, that brings me back to what got me into plants is the the interaction with the Carnard blue butterfly larva and the lupin. Well, yeah. those butterfly larva, the caterpillars are tended by ants and, and someone was able to demonstrate. I don't know how strong the effect size was, but there was a antifungal because just as they're juicy little treats for birds, there's a lot of juicy. They're essentially 
moving auger plates for fungal infection. So I could see that being a, <laughs> any grub is ripe for infection. So why not? Right. And you think too, like I look at some of the galls that are more apparent on the landscape, the really bright red ones, you know, there's, there's evidence that there's, they're concentrating anthocyanins, all these antimicrobial uh, antioxidant compounds as another form of defense. I mean, that's the, the, the wasp larva, whatever the gall making larva manipulating the plant's defenses for its own use. So why not utilize some of the best bodyguards in the animal kingdom <laughs> to your exactly. advantage? <laughs> well, and you know, there are galls that release nectar. Hmm. So just like extra floral nectaries, <laughs> that's a whole other parallel, yeah. right? To this. I remember reading so, something a while back and it, I haven't followed up on it, but something about the parasitoid wasps. So the wasps in this guild of gall makers soon to be, if not already surpassing beetles in diversity of numbers, just number oh. of species. And when you think of just the law of large numbers, the ability to start, finding these weird things happening and, and exploding on the landscape just becomes more of a certainty, I guess, in a weird way. <laughs> <laughs> well, and these things are so cryptic. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is I have no doubt it. Like if you want to get to name something, <laughs> go into what leaf miners and, and gall wasps. Yep. <laughs> yep. There's just so much unknown. <laughs> Yeah, shout out to Charlie Eisman. <laughs> his leaf miners, uh, micro lepidopter. I was reading one of his blogs last night. He says, I generally don't do any moths over a few centimeters in length. And I was like, what a niche you found, buddy. <laughs> a tiny niche. Yeah, tiny, literally. <laughs> so, you know, that's a good question, man. If you got to name something, what would you name it oh, after? Boy, I'd, I'd say a loved one, but naming it after people always raises the hair on people's backs. Um, Beneath the buried and I. Yeah, probably some sort of weird <laughs> mythical thing that just, it, it, I want it to make sense in the context of the organism. I like when scientific names, you can learn something from them, uh, even if it That's is a, a story. Um, remind me at a later date to tell you the Comalina, <laughs> where Comaline came from. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a story for another time. <laughs> but you mean yeah. kind of like what, what is the Tuberate Horridalis? Oh yeah. You know what they thought about rattlesnakes when they named exactly, that one. Exactly. And so to think about this from more of the wasps perspective, I mean, the thing with galls is that's one of the most frequent emails I get during the growing season is what is this infection? This has got to be bad <laughs> for the plants. And I always say, no, it's not. It's a minor annoyance at most, especially for something the size of a full grown oak you know, generally speaking, most gall makers are not harming the tree, but it's also not the tree making that elaborate structure. It is in a sense, but it's it's really the wasp's extended phenotype, right? It's something it's secreting exactly. or doing that's making this gall what it is. And so that to me is even wilder about this is that, you know, unbeknownst to it through evolutionary time, this this larva is orchestrating this ruse on so many levels, <laughs> It's so fascinating. No, I mean, ex exactly. We want to talk about the oak, but it's really the, the wasp's extended phenotype. Yeah. And the levels that they manipulate, and, and certainly, I mean, we're using shorthand. I, I doubt that they sit down and go, what are we going to make the oak do this year? You know, it's, <laughs> if it's we just tweak this. <laughs> yeah. They're not feeding my larva enough. Yeah. Uh, 
But the level of coevolution is astounding. And then, you know, if you step back and you realize, what is it, 900 Lepidoptera species feed on oak? Something absurd you know, like that. Um, you know, I have to admit, well, I don't have to admit it, but I enjoyed uh, Doug Talmy's latest book on oak just to tally all <laughs> of the things that use oak. Yeah. I mean, it is people- in- like if you got room, plant an oak tree, find one that's native in your area. It doesn't matter which one it is. Just plant it because it's going to have multiple banks for its one buck. Yep. Everything uses oak. There's no, I was actually, we're um, giving away some uh, little oak trees for uh, Arbor Earth Day on campus. Awesome. And so I'm growing some little ones and I was pulling out a batch and all kinds of um, uh, oak weevil oh, in there. <laughs> It is the frustrating part. It's uh, very annoying to think you've got a pocket full of viable acorns only to find out. And no, (laughs) the weevils will prove you wrong, but But. weevils go on to feed other things. So in a, in a way you're like, good job. Ecology is working. (laughs) It's, it's yeah. I mean, they are, and they're, and oaks are doing fine. I mean, if people want to worry about, don't worry about galls, worry about people. People hurt oaks. Yeah. Calls don't hurt oaks. That's very true. Very true. Good context to put that in. But, you know, when you think about putting this together, how this paper evolved over time, and you're all kind of being in the same mind space of just celebrating, being blown away by all of this, as you're writing this paper, you've mentioned it, there's many different threads to go on. So how did you kind of focus in to think about, like, what are the next logical steps in the <laughs> multitude of pathways you could possibly take this research? At least from your perspective. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, that's the fun part. I mean, that's, is we can't answer everything. And I think that some folks get bogged down in that, like, in, you know, well, Darwin did. Darwin's a great example. Darwin didn't want to publish until he had followed every thread. If Wallace had not had his malarial dream, <laughs> would Darwin, Darwin ever have published, right? So, <laughs> You know, there's a point where you have to say, here's a story. Let's get this story out. And, you know, we're going to certainly try to work on some of these things. And and I'm really hoping other people pick it up because, you know, I can't do it all. We can't do it all. So I, I want to hear. Um, but, you know, I've, I've been, you know, studying this system for a long time. And I think that there's a real value to that, that maybe, you know, that, you're an easy sell here, but you really need to be out in the field and you got to be looking around and, and be interested in natural history because then you can, you know, it was, it it hit me real quickly. Like, okay. So if phenogaster, the ant that in North America, that's the main seed disperser is not going to like Oak forests. Hmm. Wait a minute. But you know, for the, the, the gall baits that we put out in the forest, it was all a phenogaster. Hmm. And that was in mixed forest, not necessarily like a dry oak ridge. Sure. So what's going on on the dry oak ridges? I mean, these are natural history questions, but there's certainly a lot of theory and evolution underlying them. Definitely. And so, you know, if we can make another little plug, natural history is important. Yeah. Time and again. I mean... Think of how many questions you generate walking through the forest. And I tell you, uh, at least from my perspective, it's way more than you know, a, a casual dive into the literature generally, not to say that's not important either, but yeah, just going, what's that? 
why is that? <laughs> right. Because yeah. I saw this over here. Oh, wait, and now I'm seeing this other thing over here. This is in contrast what's going on. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's always a, a, a detective story. And at the end of the day, was it only one species of wasp making these gulls, at least in your study? No, no, a couple. Awesome. Um, so and, ain't right? the only ones doing it either. So <laughs> no, there's a couple. And, you know, again, there's also a fascinating um, Antoine's really good at this, the, the, the postdoc. So we have um, we have. So ours is focused on a liaisome like dispersal of galls. Other papers, and we mention it in ours, but other papers go into extrafloral nectary-like galls, but there also appears to be um, galls that are more starchy, <laughs> that are more like um, uh, what would be, they're Miramacocris, where they're actually ants that eat seeds, cash seeds, and then don't eat them all, right? Oh. So more like a prairie kind of <laughs> phenomenon. Now, now, right here, this is just observation, or not sure, just sure. observation, but you know what I mean. But that seems to be going on too. So the parallels between seed dispersal and gall dispersal may run much deeper than just this phenomenon. Yeah, as soon as you said sort of the seed-eating guild, because the phenogaster isn't really dining on the seeds they're taking no, home. It's, no. it's their meat prey um, or fatty stuff. But yeah the again just the ability to trick ants <laughs> no matter what their food stuff is it's just it's phenomenal to think of the possibilities here and from a deep evolutionary perspective is every one of these systems you look at where did it start who started this how did it i mean it's a simplified way of looking at evolution but what came when and how and and or what excites did me it too, arise parallel yeah is, is it's like these things are just happening in tandem and, and happenstance works, uh, you know, evolution works with what's there. <laughs> exactly. And, and, or, you know, maybe it all started on Pangea and yeah. it's just in different places, pieces have dropped off. <laughs> right. Right. And the thing that gets me was anytime I have conversations like this, I think about all of the other people I've talked to and, and no matter how hard we try, we do kind of get siloed into specific fields until something jogs us out of it. And the importance of being curious, <laughs> the importance of natural history is that you're thinking about this. Maybe a paleobotanist listening hasn't thought about this. And suddenly that weird mark on the leaf fossil they found from the Cretaceous. Oh, that makes sense. And so that's when you start getting the curiosity, the cross pollination, just venturing out into the world and observing things starts. You, you never know how it's going to affect your life, your field, your area of interest. And the more we start crossing the aisles into different fields, the wilder this stuff can get. It, yeah, no. Well, and you know, Matt, on a, a great example, Antoine wanted to do the histology. I didn't think it was that important until he <laughs> did it. And then I'm like, wow, this is super cool. Oh, that's and weird. then, you know, the reviewers went right after it. And so we did a little more and, and you know, it was like, what do I want to say? It was kind of like the final bolt that mm. held the engine in place. And so, you know, this, yeah, that's the, the nice thing about collaboration is, as you said, we kind of get comfortable. This is how we do it. Right. And then someone comes along and is like, well, what about this? Yeah. You're like, no, no, we don't need to do that. And then you realize, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it's like anytime a mathematician starts looking at uh, diversity ma- met- metrics and going, yeah, they've been calculating those wrong. And you're like, what? No, this is a step. No, Lou Jost. Shout out to Lou Jost. Or, you know, a, a physicist like Carl Nicholas taking a stab at why do plants grow this way? I mean, that to me is where you start getting deep insights into just life on this planet. <laughs> right. It's amazing. I know. And it's great. And so, and you know, the bottom line is, Collaborate with people you like. <laughs> right. Life is too short. Yeah. You know, there's no prestige worth collaborating with jerks. Totally. And so, you know, this project was really fun from the science part, but it was really fun to collaborate with um, the folks, you know, at Penn State because they're they're all, you know, as you know, and I'm probably for the most part, I would say 80% of your guests, you know, we're nerds. Yeah, I'd hope. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, we're into it because we got this bizarre curiosity that the general public is like, what, you know, go watch the Avengers. Why are you into this? <laughs> and, and just, you know, it's not making us wealthy. No, no, no. Well, you know how you get wealthy as a, as an ecologist nerd, if you know how you make a million, right? Start, start with 2 million. Start with 2 million. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. If, if you're in it for that, we're in the wrong way yeah. yeah. And we don't really get much um, glory either. No, the whole I idea think... of fame and fortune from conspiracy is just, uh, I've yet to see that be true. <laughs> no, no. We see, we need a TV show. See, like the, the MDs have Grey's Anatomy. So we need some TV show with young ecologists having sex and, you know, <laughs> being good looking and all this and then we would be the cool field but until that happens uh, hey we're just gonna have to stick with galls and ants it's a, it's a new comms anatomy or something like that <laughs> uh, i love it and so i i have to say just as a friend you know, back in matt good job <laughs> as a friend to see you do this to have this really awesome thing come out of you know just being a nerd in the forest as i know you love to be but to come on, you know, like you had told me prior to re- recording that you hit a milestone getting this paper published in American Naturalist 20 years into your scientific career. I mean, that's <laughs> congratulations, my friend. That is it's, it's awesome. And it, I'm, I'm so stoked it was this paper that uh, got you in there. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You know, I have to admit, I never, never even thought about it. And I was talking with uh, Megan Fredrickson, who's at University of Toronto, um, because I, you know, there was some conceptual things that I wanted to to talk over with her and, and get her input. And she said, oh, this would be perfect for uh, natural history miscellany in, in American naturalists. And I, I hadn't even thought about it. So again, <laughs> back to the theme of collaboration, you know, I, I talked with the co-authors. I'm like, you know, Megan thinks this would be a good one. What do you think? And they're like, okay. Nice. <laughs> so we did. Not to say it was easy. They they definitely um, we had a great subject editor and and they ran us through the ringer. But I think the paper's better. So well, anyway, yeah, that's you hope that's the result of the peer review process and not just ego bashing. Yeah. Well, this time I don't think it was, but that certainly happens. <laughs> Lord, do I know? <laughs> no. But for those curious that want to keep following this thread with you at the you know speed at which academia occurs, everyone should be aware of that at this point. But where do you recommend they go looking to find out more about this work and all of the other work you do? Because you are prolific, man. 
and there's a lot of nerd energy going on at Puff State for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's not out in that in American Naturalist yet. It's accepted and everything. It's I think with the publisher. So any day now, we're expecting the just accepted on the website. Um, and certainly uh, for the uh, the other Gall paper I mentioned is in biodiversity and conservation, which is a journal you introduced me to. Nice again, collaboration. Yep. And then yeah, I've, uh, if you go to Buff State and look me up, there's certainly on my webpage plenty of opportunity to read different things going on. So yeah. It's, it's a good spot to not be a specialist. You won't get glory, um, but you certainly, it makes it more fun. Hell yeah. Well, that is excellent. And uh, of course, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about this, sharing your work and for doing it. I mean, it's it's inspiring. And uh, we all appreciate the the little chips we each take at the science every time you get something out there. But it's awesome. So thank you again for taking the time to talk with us. Always a pleasure, Matt. Always a pleasure to, to interact with you. And, um, you know, I think that as a longtime listener, I, I think someone needs to point out um, just how your passion drives this program. <laughs> I mean, you, you your endless enthusiasm and, and great background of knowledge actually is what makes it fun to listen to. I mean, sometimes you have good guests, too. But <laughs> Not, anyone's Not this week, but maybe next week you will. No, I mean, it's, it's the conversations that drive me. Everything else about being on social media, it all sucks except for talking to people like yourself and everyone else I get on here. So thank you. It's an interesting world. Yeah, it that's is. that's what makes it fun, right? Indeed. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, hang in there, stay healthy and uh, stay warm. Although you are sick and you enjoy all of the snow you're getting. So <laughs> enjoy, enjoy it. All right. Bye, Matt. Cheers. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating stuff. I mean, the implications there for just observations, but the science that comes along with it and the systems this could apply to, the diversity of organisms that could be involved in similar interactions, ah, gives me chills. I thank Dr. Warren for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us, and I highly recommend you go check out more of his work. All of those links can be found in the show notes, as well as all of the links for every episode. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Also, if you're enjoying the show, consider supporting it over at patreon.com slash plants because I could not be doing it without the contributions of my patrons each and every month. But that is it for this episode. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.